Just continuing our series through 1 Samuel this morning. Uh, we've had a, chapter, a sermon on each chapter. Uh, with the exclusion of last time, we had chapters 5 and 6 together. Uh, today we'll look at just chapter 7, reading 1 Samuel 7, and then flipping over to Ephesians 5 for a reading there. 1 Samuel 7. You'll remember in 5 and 6 that the Lord, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, has just gone down into uh, the land of the Philistines and defeated uh, the Philistines and their gods. And now it has returned uh, to the land of the people of God. Chapter 7, the men of Kirjath-Jerim came and fetched up the Ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill. And sanctified Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass, while the ark abode in Kirjath-Jerim, that the time was long. For it was twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you. And prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth, and serve the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered together to Mizpah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. And when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel were gathered together to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. When the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the children of Israel said to Samuel, Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it for a burnt offering holy unto the Lord. Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord heard him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and discomfited them, and they were smitten before Israel. The men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and smote them until they came under Bethker. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they came no more into the coast of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron even unto Gath. And the coast thereof did Israel deliver out of the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year in circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah and judged in Israel in all those places. And his return was to Ramah, for there was his house. And there he judged Israel, and there he built an altar unto the Lord. Amen. And then Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 14. Ephesians 5, 
verses 1 through 14. Be ye therefore followers of God, as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us, an offering, and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness, or covetousness, let it not be once named among you, as becometh saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks." For this you know that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them, for you were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, Awake, thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Amen. Amen. In 1 Samuel 7, we have several parallels that point back to the battle that happened in chapter 4. Remember, in chapter 4, the people of God were defeated Not once, but twice by the Philistines. We argued that they tried to manipulate God. Uh, They had been defeated the first time, and then they had this idea that they're going to go back and get the Ark of the Covenant and say, hey, we'll take God with us this time, and maybe we will win. In, uh, excuse me, among those parallels, you have a fear that takes place in both chapter 4 and in chapter 7. In chapter 4, the uh, Philistines are afraid of the arrival, supposedly, of the presence of God. You remember this. They said, how will we face this one, this God who has delivered these people? And then they ultimately end up winning. But in chapter 7, you have fear present as well. You have the fear of Israel recorded. They're afraid of the Philistines. But there's a drastic difference between chapter 4 and chapter 7. And that drastic difference is the heart of Israel. They had finally, it seems, been softened to the Lord God Almighty. They did not go out to battle until they had first cried out to the Lord for aid. They had already lost one time in chapter 4 before they sought the Lord Their heart of hypocrisy was revealed in chapter 4. And in chapter 7, we see a heart of repentance. As we look at this heart of repentance, let's rehearse some of the details really quick to get ourselves kind of seated in the passage and see where we are. First thing you have recorded is this this place of Kirjath 
Jerem. What would you call yourself if you were from Kirjath Jerem? Be a weird hometown name, wouldn't it? What is this town? It's a city that's about to be recovered from the Philistines. It's a city of the people of God. Well, who is Abinadab, though? Because he seems to take a very prominent place in this text. His, his house, we're told in verse 1, is the, the place where the ark of the Lord would go. This symbol of the presence of God. This place where he made himself known. This throne on earth was going to the house of Abinadab. Who was he? Well, he has at least three sons that we know of in the Bible. He has one named here, Eliezer. But he has two more, a very famous one, Uzzah. Do you remember Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6? Children, Uzzah is the man who, uh, when they were carrying the ark of the Lord in 2 Samuel 6, it goes to fall and he reaches out to touch it. And what happens? He dies immediately. God explains the passage there in 2 Samuel 6, another sermon for another day. But Abinadab is the father, not just of Eliezer, and not just of Uzzah, but a man named Ahio, like Ohio, but it starts with an A. Eleazar, the son of Abinadab, is sanctified. He's, he's set apart to keep the ark of the Lord. According to tradition, he had a reputation for holiness and was thought to be worthy to keep the ark since That had been an issue of late. Remember Eli and his sons, the tenders to the ark in previous passages in 1 Samuel. They were very ungodly. The ark remains in Abinadab's house for 20 years. Israel, we're told, laments after the Lord in the meantime. The ark will not be removed from Abinadab's house until the ascension of a very important person. King David. 2 Samuel chapter 6. The ark of God has been restored to the people of God, but it will not leave Abinadab's house, uh, the house of Abinadab in the hill, for several chapters in the record of Samuel here. What does Samuel do in this passage? Samuel calls the people to repentance in verse 3. We see them repent in verse 4. They're assured of an intercessor where Samuel will pray for them. They have this interesting uh, scene as well where the water is drawn out and one is poured out before the Lord. The fasting is, is obvious, isn't it? It occurs when, when piety occurs. It's accompanied with their confession. Samuel serving as their judge, because remember, they don't yet have a king. That's about to happen in the next few chapters. But what does it mean to say that Samuel judged the children of Israel? This is another one of those places where you need to think in Bible rather than thinking in modern terminology. One of the most famous and abused verses of today is judge not lest you be judged, right? Judge is always thrown about with negative connotations. But to judge here for Samuel is to do what Moses did. He's standing in a like place to Moses. And in 2 Samuel 14, 14, we have probably the the best scriptural explanation of what what is uh, being shown with this pouring out of the water. It's, It's a symbol. It's to show their repentance, similar to sackcloth and ashes when people would fast. 
In 2 Samuel 14, 14, a woman makes a confession, a widowed woman in that text saying this, For we must needs die and are as water spilt on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. What's the image being shown here? Well, the people are saying, We before you, O God. We before you. Because of the teaching of your servant Samuel, because of our hearts being torn because of our sin, we are as this water that is spilt on the ground and can only be gathered, only be restored by you. Children, have you ever tried to to pick up a spilled glass of water? It's impossible. You can wipe it up, right? You can mop it up. But with God... All things are possible, and this image shows this. Only God can restore them. That's why this water is is spilt. The Philistines then go up against Israel again. Remember, chapter 4, two battles. Chapter 7 here, we have another one. After the Ark of the Covenant has swept through and defeated uh, the Philistines, because the people didn't do it themselves in chapter 4, so here in chapter 7, they're going to have another battle, and the people finally do the right thing. They're beginning to get the hint. And it don't think that it just took a moment. Because remember what it says back in verse, tw- verse 2. It was 20 years. 20 years. You know, maybe you ask a question of God sometimes in prayer. Maybe you wonder about yourself. Maybe you wonder about a family member or a friend. How long will it take for change to come? Well, leave 20 years as an option on the table. Because it took 20 years for this to happen, for the people to finally have a right heart, to finally be responsive to the ministry of Samuel. Because you see how important that response was and how far they had strayed in verse 4. They had to put away these false gods, Balaam and Asherah, and to serve the Lord only. The people finally do the right thing in verse 8. And what happens in verse 9? We have beautiful biblical imagery. A lamb is offered by Samuel. And when they go out to battle, because this lamb has been offered, or or as this lamb is being offered, you might say, they went out with intercession behind them and they won. But what was their victory? Don't imagine that they walked out with, with newfound muscles and strength and weaponry. Who won the battle? The Lord By his voice, we're told, he thundered upon the enemy such that it made them easier to defeat. They even went on to pursue and smite them further. This is a victory of God. You don't just have the biblical imagery of a lamb, but you have the biblical imagery of a rock or a stone being set by Samuel. And he names the rock. Children, you ever picked up a rock? Kept it? Maybe you had a rock collection? It's probably a pretty large rock here. Samuel has. He gives it a name. The rock is named. Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Or Ebenezer. And it is set up between Gath and Ekron. Two cities of the Philistines. The cities that had been taken are being restored to Israel. Samuel is going to be established for the rest of his life as judge over Israel. Just as the Ark of the Covenant weaves through Philistia, so now Samuel is going to weave through the land that has been restored to Israel as the 
purveyor of the blessing of God's presence. Samuel is established for the rest of his life as a judge over Israel. He lives in Ramah and builds an altar there. But remember, we are between judges, right? So he's serving as a judge and several other things. We also don't yet have a king established in Israel. That comes in the very next chapter with Israel's demand for a king. But before we move into the application, what are some scriptural themes included in this passage? I've already hinted at a few with the lamb and the rock. But there's worship in verses 1 and 5. There's lament over sin in verse 2. There's a call to repentance in verse 3. There's a display of repentance with fasting, verses 3 to 4 and 6 and 8. There's intercession. There's the dread of the covenant people upon their enemies. Remember that initial promise that God had given to Abraham? That if if the people would obey, if Abraham would obey, then the fear of them would be upon their enemies. God would bring this about. You see it being restored here in chapter 7. There's dependence on the Lord, verses 8 and 12, with the Ebenezer. And there's peace between the covenant people and her enemies. Sounds like what you might call a revival. It sounds like what you might have called, what might, mm, what you might call the return of the Lord's presence or the return of the Lord's Blessing, Because remember, he himself had gone into Philistia. He had gone into exile so that the people would not go into exile, at least this time. But why did the Lord bring this blessing and the return of his presence? I hinted at it earlier with the main distinction between the battles in chapter 4 and the battle in chapter 7. Why did the Lord bring this blessing and the return of his presence? Presence. One word. Repentance. Repentance. Repentance that was seen. You can describe this repentance. The first thing that's described by is it took time. In verse 2, there's a, a question that goes around in, in ordination circles where the candidates are being examined. And the question will go something like this. How do you know if repentance is genuine? What would you say? There's only one answer. Time. Time. Anybody can be sorry for five minutes, for a few months, maybe even a few years. But genuine repentance takes time. We have at least 20 years of time displayed in this passage. This repentance was also, we could say, accompanied or produced by the ministry of the word. Remember, God had established Samuel and he spoke to all the house of Israel. He's proclaiming the word of the Lord. There was a dependence upon the word of God, hearing the message of God and repentance came from it. You have time, you have the word, and you also have visible repentance. Visible repentance, verse 4, verse 6, and verses 8 through 12. We see that their repentance was from the heart. Their repentance was from the heart. And see, this is something that only God can know. Only God can see 
the heart. Only God can tell if repentance or even faith is genuine. But we see in this text, the way God describes it, it was from their hearts. Verse 3, where Samuel says, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, if He does that, or if they do that, God says He'll deliver them out of the hand of the Philistines. They do it, evidently, because God delivers them out of the hand of the Philistines. Repentance was visible, yes, to God, but also to others. It was visible to Samuel. It was visible to the people in general. Their repentance, it showed this dependence upon God. When they were afraid, they cried out to the Lord. Rather than running out and then getting defeated and coming back and trying to clean up the mess, they were afraid from the get-go and determined to depend on God from the start. It included something that many Christians are doing right now. Fasting. Fasting. Make of Lent whatever you will. But don't make a a mockery of the Christian practice, the biblical practice, the biblical requirement of fasting. Seriously, it's sickening to hear some people describe objections to things like Lent. Not that there aren't problems that should be addressed in certain cases. But fasting? Be honest. When's the last time you fasted? And I don't mean from your cell phone. Or your favorite news station. Seriously. Repentance, so often in the Bible, includes fasting. Abstaining from things, not just that are sinful. That's an obvious fasting. We should always be doing that. But things that are not necessarily sinful. That we depend on too much. That we strive for too much. This is fasting in the biblical sense. And it's part of repentance that is shown by the people of God in 1 Samuel 7. It included action as well. Because repentance is not passive. Have you ever just tried to stop living in a sinful manner by just stopping? But you don't replace it with anything? Right? You don't fill the void and then it just fills back up with that thing you're trying to turn from. The people repented from their disobedience. They repented from their lack of trust in God and then trusted God and then went back to battle. They didn't just stand outside and wait for God to defeat them. They went to battle. Yes, they were afraid, but they called on the Lord and then went and God carried out the victory. You could say that their repentance looked like Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 14. There was a genuine love for the Lord displayed. We know this because the Lord knows the heart and He chose to bring His blessing because of their repentance. It included a putting away of unrighteousness. We're told that they serve the Lord only. They refuse to partake of unrighteousness and with the unrighteous any longer. The things that were shameful even to speak of, they put away. They went into a permanent fast from unrighteousness. Not just a temporary fast from things indifferent. The former, permanently fasting from unrighteousness, is required at all times. But the latter is required some of the time. That is to say, fasting is required by Scripture. Very simple line in the Gospels. Jesus does not say, If you fast, 
He says, when, not if, when you fast. They awoke from their sleep, as Ephesians 5 described. They arose from a type of death, and Christ himself, yes, the Lord Jesus Christ, gave them light. And this same is available to you today. Baptism points to all of those things. I don't know if you uh, caught all of them. It's a very significant list that our BCO and Scripture lists out for what baptism means and implies and carries with it. Baptism points to all of these things listed in Ephesians 5. It points to the whole holy life displayed in 1 Samuel 7. Parents, you are to vow to teach your children these things. We heard it just a moment ago. The baptized have the promise of the defeat of these things in the sacrament itself. You heard it earlier in the explanation and the vows taken by the Snyders. Would that God would have mercy on us that we might be able to see what we might say, the Philistines that are around us. God have mercy on us that we might be able to see the real sin in our lives that we must repent of if we would have those things returned to us that he means to give us. Did you notice that in the text towards the end? The men of Israel went out. They pursued the Philistines. They defeated them until they came all the way below Bethker. Samuel takes the stone, offers it up to the Lord. Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Ebenezer, O God, you have done this. So the Philistines were subdued. They came no more. The hand of the Lord was against them. Verse 14, the cities which the Philistines had taken were restored to Israel. You see, with the practice of repentance, the Lord very often restores what was lost. It was said last Lord's Day morning that the Lord does not need his people to do his work. He doesn't. He doesn't take a helping hand from them. In chapters 5 and 6, he doesn't take a helping hand from them in chapter 7. But he will not give the fullness of his victory to his people if they are not faithful. God will not only accomplish his purposes for you, he will accomplish them through you in his own time. The Lord makes his people willing in the day of his power. The Lord will take none who are unholy into his heaven. He will not give his land to a people who refuse to do battle. Sin cannot be defeated passively. God makes his people active. God showed them in chapters 5 and 6 that it is his power that defeats the enemy. He shows it here as well in chapter 7. It's his thundering mercy that brings about their victory and the restoring to them of what he said was theirs. Children, it's as if God blew them over in preparation for Israel to walk through and check to see if they were dead. Remember, what is the main difference between the defeats of chapter 4 and the victory of chapter 7? A people with hearts that are broken over sin and therefore dependent on God and His mercy. They went into battle in both chapters, but they were only victorious in one. The merciful power of the Lord Jesus Christ is given only to those with contrite hearts, not those who pay him lip service. Remember, 
One of Jesus' condemnations of the Pharisees and scribes. Their lips utter my words, but their hearts are far from me. And in verse 3, we have a similar call here. If you return to the Lord with all your heart, then you should, is the implication, put away the strange gods. Prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve Him only. And then He will deliver you out of the hand of your enemies. You cannot do the things of God. You cannot have an Ebenezer without a heart that loves the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Without a heart that gives itself fully to the Lord. This chapter is a great proof of this. And to tag on to baptism and parental obligations. Parents, you have to teach your kids to do more than obey. You can't cook up love in the heart simply by making outward obedience required. You have to teach them to love the Lord. St. John in the fifth chapter of his first epistle actually says that love is commandment keeping. But don't you know that there is a type of commandment keeping that lacks love? Truly, we can say that is not commandment keeping at all, but we know there is such a thing as hypocrisy. That same John says earlier in that epistle that we love because he first loved us. That love of God to us has been shown again today for our eyes to see in the waters of baptism, in the sacrament of baptism. It is the first and earliest lesson of the covenant child, the child born to Christian parents. It is a showing of the love of God Almighty and meant to create love in the heart of the one baptized and those who witness the sacraments. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 1-2, Be therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and has given Himself for us an offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Love is required of the Christian. Love was shown by the covenant people in 1 Samuel 7. And with that love towards God, His blessing returned. May God grant His blessing on His sacrament today, reminding us of our own baptisms, that we might walk in love anew, having hearts filled with repentance. And friends, the lives that show repentance. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord of heaven and earth, we beseech you to grant unto us that we might earnestly desire, wisely search out, truly perceive, and perfectly fulfill those things which are well-pleasing in your sight. Fill our hearts with love that true repentance might come to the praise and glory of your name. With the prayer Christ taught us, our Father, who art in heaven, 